0: Gordon Hinckley was uh, an associate of the hunters, and he was involved in heterosexual and homosexual love affairs at the home on Lakeland Drive, as well as the car lot, an apartment above the car lot on South Main.
1: Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. I have Derek Bros joining me today to discuss his ongoing investigation into the, a, a, uh, do, a documentary, a video that was sent to The Last American Vagabond in regard to a previous amount of research he was conducting around this Utah child sexual abuse story. And this specifically had to do with former president Gordon B. Hinckley and a former bishop, I believe, on the name of Walton Hunter. And it's a very interesting conversation and very disconcerting conversation about what others are accusing them of having been involved in. And it's important to understand it in that way, because what we're trying to break out with this or, you know, expose with this is the most important in my opinion is one that this, they're being accused of this. And interestingly, we're in a time politically where we seem to dance back and forth between whether we should trust everyone that accuses anybody or ignore anybody that says anything. The point being that these people have a right to be heard. And so Derek has been investigating this story and more and more continues to come to light as this, develops. And so the investigation is starting off with those two main individuals in this discussion. And so I wanted to invite Derek on today to discuss what he's finding, what he is, what he's found so far, what he's continuing to hear and where all this started. And hopefully more can come to light at the very least, as I said in the article, we put out that these people have the right to be heard. And that's what this is really about. So thank you, Derek, for joining me today. How are you?
0: Hey, I'm doing good, brother. I'm a little exhausted after the past few weeks that we've been behind the scenes working on this, but uh, I'm happy that it's out now, and I'm ready to share.
1: Absolutely, and yeah, just to give Derek the, the lion's share of the credit here, he's been busting his hump out there, trying to get this done, and doing a lot of work, sleepless nights, you know, as you can imagine, trying to comb through some pretty uncomfortable discussions and, and and information. So, thank you for doing this, Derek. I'm sure you know the families and individuals involved, as well as anybody out there who does not feel they're being heard. I- Greatly appreciates what you're doing. So I, I said, why don't we start off since uh, those that might have seen this investigation who ju- that just came out yesterday may not have known where this began in regard to the, the work that you've been doing around the Utah uh, Sheriff's Department and a couple of other individuals involved and what this opened up for you and how this began.
0: Yeah, sure. So uh, back in the first week of June, I started writing an article for TLAV about the Utah Sheriff uh, County, County Sheriff's Office investigation into what they called, you know, ritualized sexual abuse. Those were theirs, their own words, ritualized child sex abuse, um, to be clear. And that obviously you know, raise some, some alarm bells and, you know, uh, some eyebrows. And so I started looking into it, uh, as did a few others, started contacting the sheriff's office. And that led to the five-part investigation, which I did, um, from June till early August, right before I started this, this, uh, latest one here. And yeah, it started with me just saying, Hey guys, well, look, the Utah County Sheriff's office is saying they're investigating, ritualized child sex abuse in three different counties in utah and they said that it involved multi-state agencies we would learn later the the fbi is involved in some way uh so he was like whoa what's this all about that was strange enough on its own and then that set off like this whole kind of series of events that I detail in my articles where the county attorney says, Hey, I'm not a cannibal. I'm not involved. Me and my wife aren't. And so through my five part series, I investigated who that man was, David Levitt. Why is he speaking up? You know, why is he inserting himself into this? Uh, we looked at the history of these kinds of claims in Utah, just in general, broadly speaking, and they do exist. And then we also started to look at the, the last piece I did. The fifth one was a look at the history of sexual abuse claims within the Mormon church. And so when I published that one, when we published that one, that is what led to where you know we are now, where a lot of people, st- people were already reaching out to me and sending me things like, Hey, I heard about this thing in Utah, or I remember this thing from when I was a kid or, you know, and different things. And, and sometimes that's really how it works. Like I can't write articles about every single one of those stories, but rest assured to anybody out there listening, like there's more than what we're putting on, you know, putting in paper and putting in print here. It's just that we can't corroborate all the other claims at the moment, but there's definitely people you know, speaking out and sharing more than I have written about. Uh, But overall, it's kind of painting a picture of of what seems to be taking place in Utah and and really a lot of places in the world. Um, But yeah, once I started to focus on the Mormon church and just looking at their history, I did start to receive uh, even more emails of of people wanting to share their stories. And those are people who are uh, some still Mormons who have some concerns about the church and thoughts and things of that sort. Some who are former Mormons who are now consider themselves christians um and maybe in their words true christians you know they kind of see mormonism as something else now Mm -hmm. and then others who went from mormonism to maybe atheism or just you know a just totally rejecting religion so all kinds of people you know this isn't just like an anti-mormon sort of attack which unfortunately sometimes when it comes when religions are involved the the believers and the the followers of that particular religion rather than seeing the kind of stories that we're doing here as a chance for purification for like hey let's cleanse our belief and our our community of these supposed bad apples if it's not you know rotten to the core let's talk about it so we can get rid of those bad apples and instead sometimes people have this kind of knee jerk reaction of defending their tradition their beliefs whatever and because they, they personalize it they take it like as an attack on them and so they're like no there's no way these claims could be true so i just want to make that clear from the outset that the article although there are people again current and former former mormons who do have some pretty strong opinions about the actual what the mormon church actually represents that was not the focus of this series or uh, you know this new series or my previous ones
1: Yeah, it's important. I'm glad you said that, too, because that's the real. The point is, this is a focused investigation that just so happens to align with the Mormon Church. Derek is simply following the information that's being presented and and the research and the information he's discovering through his investigation. Because there's an entire body of of work as nobody should be confused about today around what's going on with the Catholic Church. Like this is not just an attack on one or the other. This is just about researching the information and finding out whether these people, you know, again, the point of whether, first of all, that they have a right to be heard, that that's the first part that's being suppressed, but then find out whether there's validity to their claims. What I think is interesting is that we can point at something like the Utah Sheriff's Department or any other example one of the most prominent that literally, I don't think anybody's unaware of today is something like Jeffrey Epstein. And yet we can still have these very real discussions that you know whether investigated by court by mainstream entities or proven back backstories and yet you can bring these topics up and still get dismissed as a conspiracy theorist or the entire conversation gotten rid of you know however you it's put down today that happens everywhere and i think that's pretty crazy at the very least we should be willing to let it flesh out right and i wanted to say that i that i didn't mention in the beginning that we'll get into is the interesting part about this and the reason that this secondary investigation that Derek conducted is being done is because of the documentary that we clipped we showed a quick part in the beginning there that was sent and that this is something that you won't find anywhere else it wasn't on the internet anywhere and that in and of itself is pretty crazy to think about You know, that these things are being suppressed and disparaged and they're being attacked. And I want actually, and before you go forward, I wanted to start off by showing people where to find these things. Oh, actually, I brought this up as well. Same point that I was just making that, you know, we, this is something on the T-Lab from, uh, it was originally posted on 2015 in in November. It was reposted again on the 2019 because it was, you know, relevant but six case studies the point the massive pedophile rings in the highest levels of power and this is very real information that you can break down that was suppressed and you know we've gone over this in the past but just there can be so much backstory around these ideas not just Mormon or anything else but not even just not even just politically connected and people still disregard them but if you'd like to check out his previous work on these uh, the Utah specifically I wanted to show you quickly where you can find that if this is you know confusing for some people Derek's break- drop down is right here. And you can go to, first of all, and I'm going to add names to these, by the way. I forgot about that. U- Utah Ritualized Sexual Abuse Investigation, Part 1 through 5. And you can check those out. Here is what the title, Justice Delayed, is the title for this series under in regard to the investigation to Gordon B. Hinckley and Walter Hunter. And there's the two parts of it right there. So just pe- so people can see that in general. And then we're going to get to the next part of this investigation. But bringing this back to the Utah discussion and Levitt. Now, for those that don't uh, haven't read those yet, now, in the beginning, he stood up and said, No, that's wrong, and brought a bunch of weird things to the table, like cannibalism that weren't even mentioned yet, and pushed back on it. But can let us know what happened since then, because that's important.
0: Yeah, so unfortunately, there hasn't been any update. So, um, and I, I, I periodically will. Call the um, sheriff's office, Utah Sheriff's Office, public information officer, and say, you know, is there any update this week, or is there any, mm-hmm. you know, anything new? Uh, but so, just to remind folks about that again, I do encourage you to go read at least. There's two or three of those that specifically deal with that case involving uh, the sheriff's investigation, and then David Levitt putting his foot in his mouth and saying he wasn't a cannibal, and also showing towards I think part four that actually David Levitt is, you know, is under investigation by the uh, Homeland Security for potential trafficking for, um, bending, you know, at the least bending the rules during Mm -hmm. some adoption process. And there might even be some bigger things and maybe at a future time we can, um, we can have another conversation specifically on that. Cause I know I've mentioned this in the past, Ryan, but I had some, again, more information sent to me. David Levitt is an interesting character, and he has some historical connections to Ukraine that we only briefly touched on in that article, and I think that might even be a bigger source. He has the Levitt Foundation, which has been doing work in Ukraine since the 2014 revolution out there, and uh, there's some potential trafficking taking place through those organizations, but this guy is a really interesting man, and, and like I learned... Over the last, you know, this summer, as I've been investigating, I learned a lot about Utah and Utah and not just in the Mormon church, but Utah in general. You have a lot of the same last names cropping up and popping up because of the people who settled Utah when it was the Wild West, the frontier, you know, and those families still remain pretty powerful. David Levitt's uh, father... Dixie Levitt I think very powerful man running this insurance broker his brother become the governor of Utah you know so it's not just inconsequential people again that we're dealing with but yeah since that case was first announced and then David Levitt came out he, David Levitt from the beginning was trying to claim that it was a politically motivated investigation even though he was never named and the sheriff's office still never said he was the focus mm-hmm. again he just kind of outed himself he was like this is all politically driven because the you know the elections coming up well he ended up losing that election so he won't right. be um, county attorney by come January, which I think potentially maybe some law enforcement are waiting for him to be out of office. I don't know what the case is, but as of today, the Utah sheriffs haven't made any, made, made a single sound since they first announced things on May 31st. So it's almost been three months and, you know, police investigations can take a while, but um, I'm just hoping they, it doesn't involve federal. Sorry, yeah, exactly. Sorry. No, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, they did mention there's federal, state and local Right. County official I mean so it's it's clearly a big investigation. Um, I'm hoping that yeah that it really does net something you know some like something comes out of it and it doesn't just end up being as we've said in previous interviews just one of these stories we talk about remember back in 2022 when this sheriff announced this thing and never happened right so hopefully that's not the case.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it. and by the way, it doesn't have to mean that both those things are mutually exclusive. I mean, it could be politically motivated and he could also be guilty. Right. That that those are both definitely possible. The evidence yeah. is still being fleshed out. And that's the point. But so the idea of the very strange I mean, it's not even inaccurate to call it human trafficking in regard to his weird adoption. That That's that whole story is really alarming because and we I, we fleshed out in the last discussion. There's the, uh, levels to this, right? Whether there's this discussion of like Native American, you know, children or, or foreign children being brought over illegally, now whether that's because you want them as a child or something more nefarious, that's still human trafficking, right? I mean, that so that that at least early part of that he's already being accused of, that's already being investigated. There's all sorts of weird stuff there, you know, and the fact that it's broadened out into this larger investigation, including federal. I mean, I find it almost, I mean, you know, we have to wait for the evidence to flush out, but it seems very. All indications point to the fact that there's something there, and that's that's what, of course, the corporate media would be saying if it was something that was like Russia bad guy or some topic they were allowed to point at. They'd be like, "Yep, exactly. Follow those breadcrumbs." So, but yeah. we're objective, so we have to wait for it to flesh out, right?
0: <laughs> and and that's pretty much what I'm doing. You know, it's not like a very satisfying feeling, but um, at this point, it is for the most part. Other than like somebody leaking us some kind of information that we can report on even then we don't have the authority or the ability to go make an arrest. So we're kind of standing by at this point. Right. Right. But
1: so that we're that story is going to continue to flesh out hopefully. Uh, but this ultimately led to the research you did Derek on the Mormon church and child sexual abuse. And, and this is what really opened the door to people to, to reach out to you and said, Hey, you know, we've got this documentary that they've suppressed for years. And, and so go ahead and, uh- go ahead and let us know how that happened.
0: Yeah, and so this is honestly, I think that this is in in um in the career of a journalist, or for those of us who, you know, really try to pursue journalism in the sense of reporting on things, but actually, you know, trying to contact people, follow up with leads, et cetera, develop sources. I think these are the kind of things you always wait for. Somebody sends you something that you haven't seen anywhere else, it's like, oh, I got an exclusive story, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, I wish it was about a happier topic, maybe. But it, either way, the point is that when you get something like that, it's not so much about like, oh, look at me, I've got an exclusive story. It's like, this is something that nobody's seen, and this could help a lot of people. And that's right. kind of where my mind went. And so, yeah, as you mentioned, once we published that uh, part, which I think what, did we published it in uh, late July, mid-July, that's mm-hmm. when these emails started to come in, where I started to get people reaching out and different sources. Um, and I will say even more that there's, I have two or three more stories about Mormonism that I had I, may or may not get into, you know, next or immediately, because I kind of do need a break from this stuff for a moment. But people started to reach out. And one of those was a source that said that they had a copy of uh, a VHS tape that was titled The True Story of uh, Mormon president Gordon B Hinckley. And that's the clip that we're playing at the beginning. That's the clip that is on the inside the the new articles and it's been uploaded online. It's now on the internet for the first time ever that I can see like, because when, when, when I was told, Hey, I have this videotape and it's about people making accusations against Gordon B Hinckley. I didn't even really know who he was other than the research that I've done. Um, already I seen his name came up and I knew that he was important. He was the president of the church for quite some time and he died in 2008, I believe. And at the time, he was the oldest member of the church. He had a lot of really powerful connections. He really modernized the church. And some would even say that he helped it grow to the multi-million member church that it is now. Whereas before in the past, Mormonism was kind of always seen as like this weird side thing, not necessarily Christianity. And But in the last 30, 40 years, it really has exploded in, uh, in, in popularity and support. And some would say, unfortunately, because of these kinds of things. And uh, I think that makes sense in the the context of why this tape wouldn't have been widely accessible or ever made it online, that, you know, people have made an effort to Keep it from getting there. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so yeah, the the source basically said, I have I have this tape. I have another tape as well that um, you know deals with a man sharing his story of what he knew. And I didn't know much beyond that. And we just you know say, okay, let's get this tape. And we were able to receive the tape and uh, digitize it, which I think is great. So that now, of course, we can upload it on the internet. It's not just a physical copy that can be. Damaged or stolen or lost or whatever. Right. It's it's now been saved uh, at some point in the past. There were reportedly three to four thousand, maybe more of these tapes, uh, which is still not a whole lot back in the er- the mid early 90s being distributed in certain areas of Utah and shown at churches whenever churches were willing to, to hear the you know, uh, the people involved were going around and showing it and sharing it with friends. And, uh, and yeah, and then it, I guess, slowly, you know, people lose it, it disappears, maybe people got it buried in, you know, basements or attics somewhere, but it really has never been circulated widely. And so I said, yeah, send tape, let's, let's see what this turns into. And I started to do research. And the more I dug into it, again, like I couldn't find, I mean, I am pretty good at scouring the internet for, for information when I need to. And I found two blogs that referenced this tape but they don't even have the correct title. And it's like a very obscure mention in a blog from 1992 on an ex-Mormon forum. You know, it's nothing like widely publicized or that people have seen. So, you know, I think some people, maybe older generations in the Mormon community probably have heard of or are familiar with this tape, but most people by and large have no idea what this is, where it came from. I didn't know what it was. Um, and so I've just spent the last you know month or so, uh, watching hundreds of hours of not only once we receive the tape, obviously watching the tape, but in you know investigating everybody that was listed in there. Who are these people? Are any of them still alive? Can I contact them? Trying to find phone numbers, emails, addresses, work contacts. Um, trying to learn everything I could about the situation, about these other films called the God Makers that came out. You know, there's a lot of information to deal with, and and you know, in the end, the work of the journalist is to take all that stuff and then turn it into this two-part series that, that we have. So, you know, obviously everything I consumed didn't make it in there because it's some of it is background information. Some people only are willing to speak off the record and they don't want to be quoted. That's what people need to understand as well, that I can't list every single source that talked to me and told me things that they know because people are still afraid. Um, and the other thing is some of the people in the tape, I think a good chunk of them, maybe one of them is still alive. The rest have since been des- uh, since deceased and two of them I couldn't find we searched and searched and searched and couldn't find two of them. They may be alive, um, and maybe they'll see this and maybe they'll they'll come forward. That's also why we're doing this as well, is right. to see if anybody involved. Um, but I did speak with people who, you know, who who are involved in different ways, and and yeah, so that led to basically the beginning of this investigation. And once I started to really map this out and okay i got this tape it was made at this time it involves these people and it's accusing this person and really flesh it out i could see yes there's something here that needs to be shared and so we started you know collaborating on, on like okay what are we going to do with this how are we going to tell this story and i think that it's evolved in a really uh, a really good way and if you want uh, i can jump into it or you want to say anything first
1: yeah well i just wanted to point out for so and so you referenced the the god maker that, so essentially, the film is a documentary that still is yet to be found. Essentially, right? But that this, uh, the the documentary playing the the, history, the true history of Gordon B. Hinckley, that was taken as parts of that, right? That's what that's ultimately. So this is so, only part of the larger thing that we have yet to actually find.
0: Exactly. So the, these, what you see in the in the video that we have, the true story of Gordon B. Hinckley, you see, which is about thirty minutes long, you see interviews with. Five different, four different people, and then some statements from Bill Claude and the investigator. And those interviews were recorded in the late 80s, and apparently it was like six or seven hours of tape, like really sitting down and talking to people. But I've, mm-hmm. as usual, you know, things get cut and edited, but we, we don't have the full – you know, recordings. So no does, making, right? yeah, nobody has, them. nobody has, them. those are probably lost to history. Um, or again, maybe some of the people like it's possible that Bill Clauden's family, remaining family, he passed on some things because I did find in some of the conversations that Bill Clauden was, he had, um, dozens of affidavits, sworn affidavits from the witnesses. He was ready to go to trial. He was like challenging the church to like t- sue him so he could take it all into court. Right. But yeah, so those recordings are done. And then, the snippets made it onto the video we have and but some of the people who were involved in the, the making of the film we have were also involved in these two documentaries which we talk we briefly talk about in the uh, articles i don't think they're really that important as far as the focus because there's two different things but it's worth acknowledging because i think critics will be like oh that's just god makers and that's all been debunked Because in the first Godmakers film, it doesn't mention Gordon B. Hinckley at all. It literally is just about Mormonism and about their faith and their rituals and people's belief about what those rituals really mean and stuff. So, you know, we're not dealing with that today. Um, Godmakers 2, though, which came out in 1992, features like a couple of small clips from the video we have making reference to Gordon B. Hinckley, but still largely deals with Mormon rituals and stuff like that. So that's really the only connection between the two. Some of the people helped on both of them. But other than that, and you can go find from Jeremiah Films, uh, which if you look them up, Jeremiah Films, it was like a Christian broadcasting company that still barely exists. Again, the people involved, they're deceased now. Um, but you could buy Godmakers 1 and 2 and watch it if you want to. Those things exist, but the tape we have has never been published, has never been released. And the information that I was given, um, you want me to go ahead and just well, go I, forward I, if you want else on Godmakers?
1: Sorry, cut out there for a second. I've got just one last point I want to make. And then, yes, we can jump right into it. I'll bring up the article. But I want people to think about the fact that because yeah, a lot of people are going to rightly question, you know, and, and good question it, you know, ask whether or not because at this point, like Derek was saying in the beginning is no one is arguing that this is absolutely 100% exactly what happened. It's just simply go, arguing that this has a right to be seen and discussed and that there is very, very disconcerting connections that seem to lead in the direction that this, that this has something to stand on. But my point was this, to think about the fact that this was not just about, you know, that it getting its day in the light and people talking about it and going, no, there's nothing there. This was an active, coordinated, systematic suppression by the Mormon church. And it's not hard to see. There's lots of discussion about this. We see this being discussed even today from associated press, right? That there's a real active effort to suppress this. Now, whether you think it's because they feel that's not sound, that still doesn't make it okay to shut down somebody's right to speak up about what they feel happened. Or you know, It's certainly possible that it could be in their head or that it's not true, but the evidence speaks differently, in my opinion. But the point is that the church made an effort to seek these things out, shut them out, and stop it from being seen. That's dishonest no matter how you spin it, even if you think it's not accurate. And the AP article, which you mentioned in your first article here in the part of the series, they're talking about the idea of a phone line called the helpline which is used by the Mormon church to redirect claims of abuse to their lawyers instead of the police. And that's coming out in an associated press discussion. You know, So the reality is there's an active effort, whether it's the Catholic church, the Mormon church, by these large organizations to shut down things like this before they see the light of day. And that's what this is really about. And I think that's incredibly important.
0: Absolutely. And uh, to add to that, we kind of touched on this earlier, but, you know, just to reiterate, this isn't uh at the moment i mean honestly if further investigations were to reveal things specifically focused on the mormons and we would take that route uh, i am right. just following the truth where it is but at the moment that's not our 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 uh, approach here because in the last year you can find a story about an investigation into the southern baptist church covering up child abuse obviously right. everybody knows about the catholic church the jehovah's witnesses yes the mormon church and you know on and on so it's it's a it's a problem that exists within these institutions but um and i also want to say that I did reach out to the Mormon church for comments as well that we did send them uh, a summary of what we were going to be publishing and ask them to comment on that. And I also want to mention that I sent this these stories in a press release to every single mainstream outlet in Salt Lake City. And the surrounding counties, and not a single one has responded or covered And the Mormon church hasn't made any effort to offer a comment, even saying you guys are full of it, or, Mm -hmm. you know, we think this is crazy or anything, maybe that'll change. Uh, And we hope, I hope it'll change, honestly, this is why, like, and just for a personal appeal, before we dive into this, if you're watching this, guys, wherever you're watching, please share this information, please read it. I mean, it's not going to get out there if people don't share this information. I know there's a million stories every day for you to consume and share about but we put a lot of time, I put a lot of time, energy, hours, um, you know, manpower, et cetera, and on the phone with people, including a phone call today that I'm going to share exclusively in this interview, um, to try to confirm this information. This isn't just QAnon, random people talking online, making up theories. Like This is stuff that we dug into that sources sent to us. So please, if you do care about the truth and getting accurate information, and, and at, at most, if you care about honoring these victims, these alleged victims um, and their stories, and uh, maybe helping us get more of the picture, then please share this information. That's the only way that there's any potential justice.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And and again, just that's my, my biggest drum to hit here is that these people have a right to be heard and they haven't been. Right. And, and so think about living your entire life in a situation where, you know, you have suffered an abuse or at least you believe that. And no one's ever even given you the time of day or allowed you to speak or seen any kind of rec- recompense or any anything. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's just mm-hmm. absolutely mind blowing. And then just to see how all of this is tied as usual to a larger point. And that's always my mindset is, you know, just the abuse or the, from a from a institutionalized level that you know the fact that he has ties to ukraine i mean there's there's so much going on around all of this powerful people Mm -hmm. covering up powerful you know that's that's where this always goes to me so it's important that people see this fleshed out so thank go ahead derek jump into it okay
0: so yeah so we got the tape and um Basically, it clearly, it, it, we believed it was worth doing something about. And it turned into this two-part investigation, which we called justice delayed. And the reason for that is obviously because at the moment, there still isn't any justice for these victims. Uh, as I mentioned, most of the people who claim to be witness to some of these activities we're about to cover uh, have deceased. And I'll share a little bit today in this interview that I didn't put in the article because... And I'll make it clear, I don't have the evidence for it at the moment, but these are things that people are telling me that are at least, I think, part of the story. So um, Ryan was mentioning a moment ago about this, you know, this Associated Press investigation that's happened in the last week. The reason I started with that is just to reiterate the point that although what we're talking about with the accusations with Gordon B. Hinckley and Walton Hunter happened in like, the 60s, I mean, that's when they really took place, but the 70s, 80s, they start to come out, right? And people are thinking like 60, 50, 40 years ago, what does that matter? But it's not just then. Clearly, the Associated Press a mainstream outlet is reporting on this right now, 12,000 pages of previously sealed records showing that the the, uh, Mormon church is still not properly dealing with abuse within their church. So, I mean, if it's happening now, then why not look at some of these claims that, as Brian, you were mentioning, the church clearly went to some effort. And as we document in this story, the church went to some effort to suppress. Shouldn't we look at those claims? And, and maybe even through those claims, some of the Mormon community might choose to revisit the legacy of Gordon B. Hinckley and, and, and maybe come away feeling different with him. But at the moment, because they believe that their leaders are literally prophets, he's held up almost like a God. And I think that that is problematic. Absolutely. So um, so in my once we get into the video now, um, the video again is called The True Story of Mormon President Gordon B. Hinckley. You can find it. It's it's been embedded in the video. I think you have it on the Rumble channel, right, Ryan?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we have it saved on the server as well as the on Rumble uh, for kind of an interesting experiment to see if it stays up there. But but it's also it's on the site here. I'll include the link so you
0: guys can check it out. But should it disappear? We have it saved in the server. So. Mr. Exactly. And I have it saved on mine as well. So the video is not disappearing and we encourage people to download it, re-upload it, like, you know, get it out there. That's the whole point of that's why we're making it public. Um, not really to make any hard claims about it just yet, you know. So um, I go through a little bit of, I kind of touched on this earlier, that Hinckley was a powerful person. Clearly, as I just mentioned, not only as once you make it to the president and kind of up to that top level of the uh lds you are seen as a prophet a seer you have several several titles and you know kind of universally revered within the church like to the point that some of the only people so far who've been critical in the last 24 hours since we published these articles are people who are still within the church and seem in my opinion incapable, incapable or unreason- un you know willing to to have an objective conversation. Maybe you really can't if you're in the church and you're aspiring to be a part of the temple. I mean, and, you know, just the way the Mormon church works, like it's, it's very much like you need to follow the, the leaders of the church. So I know that it's probably difficult for some people in the church to consider these claims, but I ask everybody to do so with an objective mind.
1: Real quick, Derek, I think what's important to think about is the two places that you see this in the world where that kind of blind, willful ignorance happens is religion and politics. That's yeah. not an accident, right? Like, think about what that means, If people are unwilling to engage. And damn it, if we don't see that with COVID and everything happening politically today, it's the same way here, you know, and so it just shows you an unwillingness to engage. I mean, I almost understand it to a degree, whether you want to look at it like a psychosis kind of thing, or just that they don't want to acknowledge that their entire life has been based on something that may not be what they thought it was. You get why that's uncomfortable. But yeah, that's that's an important insight. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. And I do, I know it. And that's what I'm saying. I get the people are uncomfortable. We're not trying to attack anybody. Look at this information. And what I think is important and what we're about to show here is that not only do we have the video, the true story of Gordon B. Hinckley, which, as I mentioned, there's five people that are listed in there that make these accusations about Gordon B. Hinckley. And so since we're 20 something minutes into into the video, let's make it clear what the accusations are. Mm -hmm. Gordon B. Hinckley, who at the time was an apostle in the church and then eventually went on to become the president of the church. Um, was associates and friends with these two men, the Hunter brothers, Alvin and Walton Hunter, who owned the Hunter Hunter Motor Company car lot in Salt Lake City. And they, they had a relationship. They were friends. They were also in the church. So, um, you know, that relationship exists. We know that 100%. They are accused of hosting sex parties in this apartment above the car lot, as well as another home in Salt Lake City, which was uh, allegedly purchased with money that was passed from Gordon B Hinckley through the hunters to another man to make the purchase so that they would have a place to have their, their sex capades, I guess you could say. And so there's a house in Salt Lake city, there's an apartment above the Hunter motor car company, and they are apparently having parties with um, prostitutes of all types of women. Um, they said that there was also men there as well. That, you know, some were having sex with men. Uh, these men, and uh, also that there there's accusations of young boys being involved. Now that of course is the strongest claim because in in the, the first part of it, besides the fact that they're Mormon, and if these guys were out, you know, they were married, of course. So if they were out having getting seeing prostitutes and having parties, well, then I guess they're guilty of um, infidelity, right? And they would be guilty of violating Mormon norms and traditions and customs. They would probably be kicked out of the church, right? Because uh, for one thing, like the Mormon church has very much been conservative for a long time. There was a big uh, thing in their history of when the first black man was allowed to be in the church because they said uh, black people couldn't be priests in the church. And then, uh, you know, women are also not allowed to maintain certain positions. There's There's a certain way that they do things, right? So even if you take out the accusations of young boys. If Gordon B. Hinckley was meeting with prostitutes and having a homosexual relationship, then that would have damaged and ended his career in the Mormon Church. Mm-hmm. You know, need, you know, in addition to any other sort of repercussions that may have happened, at the very least, that would have been the end of, uh, and it probably would have shattered a lot of people's views. Um, but the accusations go further, and they say that there and there's several, you know, witnesses here who claim to have seen young boys. Uh, at these parties, and so the names might kind of s- slip by people's minds. So I'm not really going to focus too much on that. I do encourage everybody to read the article because there's yes. there's some there's some moving parts here. Um, but the point is that one of the employees of the car lot said that he saw that he helped get the prostitutes and that he saw uh, young boys up there. One of the the man who was the manager of the car lot, Charles Van Dam, also claimed to have a homosexual relationship with uh, Gordon B. Hinckley and also claimed to have seen quote feminine looking boys uh, there. Um, he said 15, 16 years old is what he described it. Another woman, Vi- Viola Gallo, she was uh, she worked in the car lot as well. And she was present at a lot of the parties. She said she wasn't a prostitute. She was just there to like clean up and do different things. And they, you know, they had invited her to participate once or twice. She says that she did meet Gordon B Hinckley at some point, And she also said that she saw one night uh, in her word. Um, There was a couple of young boys one night at a party, I would say around 15 or 16. They went off to a bedroom together, Hinkley and the boys, two boys, in fact, and they were in there for quite a while. And so this tape makes these claims. And again, this came out late 80s, early 90s. It comes out, uh, it's being printed by the you know hundreds, if not thousands, and shared to different churches. Uh, And then it kind of disappears. And it it, it never, as we said earlier, didn't make it on the internet. Um, but we have, and the way the article kind of wraps up, I'll let you comment before I get to this, Ryan, but is we actually have a corroborating witness. It's not just the people speaking on the tape. Although I will say again, I made every single effort I could searching, um, public records, uh, housing records, uh, anything I could find, paying money for services in addition to my own, uh, my own skills and, and searching and finding people and found that Viola Gallo is dead. Um, Bill Clauden is dead. Uh, the, uh, Charles Van Dam is dead. He was the guy who claimed to have a relationship with Hinckley. He died of AIDS uh, shortly after he made his testimony. And um, the Hunter brothers are dead. And then I couldn't find two of the other people. But just to make it clear, we weren't just going to put this tape and throw it out into the wild. We are trying to confirm the claims as much as possible, see if any of these people are still alive, see if they want to speak again. And unfortunately, they've they have they've all passed away um, and there's two we can't find. And if anybody has better skills than I and, and can find the names in here that I wasn't able to, if you can find Ben Pelham or Louis Sims who lived in Salt Lake City in the 60s and 70s and 80s, um, worked at the Hunter Motor Company car lot, then uh, reach out to me, help me find them and let's see if they're willing to speak. But at the moment, you know, we have not been able to. So that is why, as I mentioned earlier, we got two tapes. The second tape, which I'm about to get into, provides further corroboration of these claims. Mm-hmm.
1: And this is a tape that we have not released yet for those, so those know, I think you said that, but just to make that clear, there's more information behind this, which is always, not that you should assume that, but understand that these are, you know, there's a lot more around this. But I, I wanna make a point around the idea of some, you know, the point is, a lot of these people, you could argue if you just want to reach and grasp at something, which is certainly possible, might have a reason to lie, let's say. There's a lot of arguments about how can you make these claims? You know, we could address that. Like the idea that you don't know for sure. The point, again, is that nobody here is arguing that these are absolute. These are fact, you know, the idea is simply that these are being stated. And there's a lot of corroboration that Derek has come, you know, speaking to different people. But. For instance, say somebody has an issue with the church because he is a homosexual man and he thinks that they attack his lifestyle. Something like that. My point is simply that if you feel that's possible, of you know, sure, that's a possibility, but you damn well better prove that if you're going to dismiss what he's saying with nothing. You know what I mean? Like the bottom line is, this needs to be fleshed out, and so if these are allegations are being made, they don't just get kicked away because he likely has a grudge. you know you need to prove stuff like that, and that's what we find in this one sided kind of situation today what in any topic you look at is that people will you know have a vested interest and will dismiss things based on a possible argument and I just want to put that out there and but in regard to the people that are uh making these allegations in the first video, now some of them were people that were uh previously associated with the church right and they're no longer and some of them aren't so there's a kind of a mixed grouping there right is that correct
0: yeah yeah and, yeah and then Charles the thing, and, and a couple others were members of the church up until the whole scandal broke out
1: right okay and and then in general around the idea of excommunication and you could we can put get into this in a second if you think it's good to wait but the idea of the fact that some of these people that were accused were then later excommunicated by the church itself, which I don't know how you see that as anything other than a at least somewhat, coro- you know. Yes, there is a problem there. Doesn't mean everything he was accused of is true, but if they chose to excommunicate these people, I mean that's vindication to a small degree. So I just wanted you to comment on that.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely. I'm going to get into the excommunication okay. in just a moment. That's in, more in the second story about the daughters, um, but. So, because let me finish with Daryl Clegg, the second video, which we put we did put for those who actually read the article series. This is why i I tweeted this out earlier this morning because I see some of the comments coming out. Obviously, people are going to go to gravitate this video. You know, we think the video is a big deal. It hasn't been seen. But if you're only watching the video, you're not getting the full picture. So please do go read the articles because in the articles, we have the corroborating witness of Daryl Clegg and we haven't released his full interview yet. So, you know, again, if you watch the true story of Gordon B. Hinckley, maybe you're like, oh, that's interesting, but that's not strong enough for me. I don't think that's you know what they claim. Well, you got to go into our article um, about the documentary. So after we get into all the allegations of the young boys, we talk about this corroborating witness.
1: I would say the same thing about this interview, by the way, too. Right. Make sure that you take the time to read his excellent research here, because it's you just can't encapsulate this in one video or one interview. There's a lot going on in both of these articles and more to come. So make sure you read these things. Go ahead, Derek.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I do appreciate that. So. So, yeah, go back to the other one real quick, if you don't mind, on Daryl Clegg. So Daryl Clegg, this is – we can say his name. We can share his story now because Daryl Clegg was a man who was friends with Bill Clawden, who was seen at the beginning of this video when we first showed the clip from the documentary. Bill Clawden was a Mormon. Who was investigating Gordon B. Hinckley? He was actually kicked out of the church for his investigation into Gordon B. Hinckley. And you could say, well, yeah, you know, if you don't believe his claims, then maybe the church would kick him out because, hey, this guy just keeps accusing us of all kinds of things. We need to get rid of him. He's a problem, right? Story- I don't know. This guy here, right? Correct? Uh, let me check it. Yeah, Bill Clodden right there. That's Bill Clodden. and he he is deceased. But he was the one who was uh, leading the investigation against Hinckley, and he makes several statements that I quote in in the article uh, that can be found in the video. But um, so he he was friends with a man named Daryl Clegg. Daryl Clegg was just an, another man from Utah who really had nothing to do. He was involved in the church uh, as well, like a lot of people in Utah at one point. He eventually left the church, I think, later in his life, but he became involved in this investigation through a mutual friend it's kind of an irrelevant story but basically him and bill Clauden had a mutual friend they became um allies and started working and so daryl clegg started to uh, uh accompany bill clauden on different investigations he actually said that he met Louis sims who's the black man that was interviewed in the article he said that he uh daryl clegg said that he met some of the prostitutes that were at the parties with hinckley so those prostitutes were speaking to them and saying, yes, you know, uh, as he says, I think in one of the clips that we included, he says something. Yeah, I think it is. In there. he says that, you know, go if you go get me pictures of the the um, the leaders, I'll tell you which ones I've seen. She's she said, like, in our business, we don't you know, we don't get names, but I know what their faces are like. So if you just bring me some pictures of people I can tell you if I've seen them before. Um, And there's some other things that, you know, Daryl Clegg says that I'll share in just a moment that we don't have hard evidence for. But the point is Daryl Clegg's testimony here, which again, he recorded in 2014, March, 2014. He died just three years later in 2017. And he reportedly told the people who were in possession of these tapes not to release them until after he passed away. And I guess they've just been kind of sitting on them waiting for the right time or the right people to share them with. And so you know, we were we were sent the documentary and we were sent Daryl Clegg's testimony describing everything that he witnessed and that he saw um, in his time associated with uh, Bill clauden And he he describes a story where he actually attended a meeting with a man named Patrick Shea, who I found, who's still alive and still around, uh, who was at the time serving as an attorney for the church and for Gordon B. Hinckley. And Daryl Clegg basically says that Patrick Shea shows up and told Bill Clauden like, You need to say that, you know, you need to come clean and say that none of this happened. You need to renege on the whole video and, you know, say you were wrong. And uh, Daryl Clegg even claims that that Patrick Shea, the attorney for Hinckley, offered him money uh, and that Bill Clodden said something along the lines of, you don't have enough money to make me lie like that. And he was sort of encouraging uh, the church to, to try to sue him. He said there was some sort of vague threats about suing. And, and Bill Clauden was like, please, please do sue me because I have sworn affidavits and I'm ready to go to court if you want to take us to court and bring all these witnesses in. And uh, the attorney, they, Bill uh Daryl Craig Clegg tells a story where he says the attorney was like, OK, well, look, if you're not going to take money, if you're not going to, you know, then, you know, you need we need you to destroy these tapes. We need you to get rid of them. And he's like, how many do you have? You know, and he thought maybe there was just a couple of them. And uh, Bill Claden said something like, well, we probably have, you know, a thousand or more copies at this point. And he Daryl Clegg says he's the guy the Attorney like visibly threw his hands up in frustration and was just like, Oh, okay, well, we can't stop that. So, I don't know what effort the church did after that. If maybe they just assumed, like, just deny it, let's ignore it, like they're doing now that we're talking about it, or if they, you know, um, because Daryl Clegg did say before he passed away, and we didn't include this in the clips, uh, but in other video, uh, other parts of the interview. He was afraid for his life. He was saying that, you know, he was afraid that if this was released when he was alive, that something might happen to him. And also he does relay that one of the prostitutes claimed, uh, and again, this is something I cannot verify. This is a testimony of one of the people who was involved. But he said that one of the prostitutes he interviewed said that they had found at least two young boys killed and like found under uh, local freeways that were young boys that were involved in these parties. And they believed it was some, you know some some part of the cover-up
1: think about what it would take i mean certainly anything's possible but you know anybody could just choose there's many reasons why somebody might do this their entire life but to spend to literally to your deathbed maintain this kind of argument after all the attacks and despair i mean it's just that to me it's a subjective point for sure but it speaks to it. Would take a lot right? argue to somebody to maintain a lie like that all the way to their deathbed. Uh, do, I have all those clips. If you'd like me to play any one, any one of the four that we had in the article, would you like
0: me to play one? Uh, yeah. Let's see if we can. Um, let's play. Let's play the one about the prostitutes. If you if you can, the first one. I think it is. Yeah, one. the first got one. It. Yeah. and they, they
1: said we've got some. They said they met a gal up there in Salt Lake, she was a working girl, evidently, and she told them that she knew all about the... She'd been in the Hotel Utah with some of those. They said, you bring me a picture of who they are and I'll show you which ones I've been with. They got a picture and brought
0: it back. She pointed out certain ones, you know, she says, know their names, we don't get into names in this business, you know. So that was just him recounting what I was saying there. I know that uh, some parts of uh, what he said are, are hard to understand. We might go back and maybe we can eventually add some subtitles there. He's just an older man and, you know, he's, he's sharing his story, but so he, he kind of is a slow talker sometimes, but as I mentioned, he was saying, you know, we met this woman. Um, they started to investigate the church and they, they met a prostitute who said like, Hey, I, I have a story to share. Um, he couldn't remember her name in the interview. And honestly, at this point, like it, if she's alive, it, I don't know how we would find her. I mean, if if, if, she, if she's alive and somehow hears this and wants to speak, we're happy to speak to her or hers or him or anybody who may have been involved. But, yeah, they said that's how it re- initially started was speaking with a prostitute. And then um, Louis Sims, who is the black man that is shown in the video, he's actually the one who said that he would go get the prostitutes. There's some rumors, speculation that he was actually a pimp. But he claimed in the video he was – and other other people, and including in the, the second story, which we haven't started yet, there is some corroboration in the the other book we get into that uh, mentions Louis Sims. So I do think he was an employee. I don't know if he just knew these women because of his associations or whatever. But in the video, he says, yeah, I happen to know some of the women, so I would go out there, and I would get some of the girls, and they would have me get five or six girls and then bring it back. And um, Yeah, so apparently – one of those women that was involved at some point started speaking with Bill Claude Daryl Clegg witnessed that and was there for some of these interviews and said, yes, there was at least two boys that they suspected were killed in relation to this bodies that were found like under a freeway around the time I haven't been able to find those incidents reported or, you know, any more details. And obviously uh, Daryl Clegg is now deceased, but the whole point with us, including that is just to say like, look, here's somebody else. Here's another kind of, layer to this testimony it's not just the video from 20 something years ago uh you know testimony from 30 years ago it's a man who was involved in the investigation who knew the people and the players involved he recounts specific details of of knowing them and um and i've also been able to speak to some of his remaining family and and confirm this that this is their father and that this is you know that that he said these things Mm -hmm. so i mean at the least it gives us Another layer to say, hey, this Gordon B. Hinckley tape is is probably or potentially true. Let's say, you know, I don't want to say that we're 100 percent yet, but we're definitely at a closer point than when we first got the tape.
1: Well, and from and from any investigator standpoint, that this this is something that should be followed up on, right? If you can't discount what's being stated and you get corroborating testimony from numerous people not necessarily connected. I, what else do you do with that? You don't just put that aside and go, okay, they say it's not real. There's far more evidence suggesting that there is something going on, especially with what we're like, again, the AP story or past discoveries of the Mormon church suppressing things. I mean, it's, there's nothing about this that would, that that would indicate that you shouldn't look further. And I think that's the biggest part about it. On that note in general, I know that there was some level of, whether it's independent investigation or, you know, speak to that for me. What, what level was there, you know, uh, mainstream i guess investigation to this if at all and what ultimately happened in that regard if you know
0: uh do you mean investigation of these claims
1: yes right at this time when they were stated and recorded like so was there well, any-
0: they they never i mean this is the thing is if anybody wants to go just do a little quick cia google search of gordon b hinckley and you'll go to his wikipedia page there's not a single mention of anything like this anywhere there's not even like controversy like a section like hey some people believe this or that And there's no articles about it. There's nothing like, you know, the only thing I could find, which I did include in the first article, was when they threatened to sue, but it only talks about Godmakers. It doesn't specifically reference the claims against Hinckley. It just says like this film, controversial Godmakers 2, is coming out. And I think it was from 1993. So anything, and that's why I'm saying there's not even a public record of this meeting between Gordon B. Hinckley's attorney and Bill Claude and Daryl Click, other than his testimony,
1: Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying ultimately is that so the Godmakers part was trying to encapsulate the allegations. What I'm saying is before that even got made, the actual investigation, like it doesn't seem that there's any like documentable conclusion like this just goes away, which that doesn't make sense from any investigator standpoint. To me, that's a huge red flag.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I like when I first found out about it and started digging into it and realized like, okay, this isn't even on BitChute or any of the more obscure kind of websites mm-hmm. where you can usually find stuff that gets taken down. Right. It's nowhere. So I was like, okay, maybe this is something worth pursuing. But so that pretty much wraps up the first part of the, 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 the investigation, which introduces the tape, what the tape is about, who, who Gordon B. Hinckley is about is what the accusations against him are and then ending with Daryl Clegg's tape. And then that's where I thought things were going to be done, honestly. I mean, until two days ago, three days ago, maybe a week or most, that was going to be the end of the investigation. But um, I decided as we were preparing this to get it ready to release, Ryan, to watch the tape one more time and to really listen with a fine-tooth comb and just like, did I miss anything? Is there another detail I can follow up with? Something like that. And as I was listening to the tape, um, Louis Sims, who again is the, uh, the employee of the car lot who was there who said he helped bring prostitutes, he mentions just kind of offhandedly that, um, remember, the car lot is called the Hunter Motor Company, and so it's owned by two brothers, the Hunter brothers, Alvin and Walter Walton Hunter, and they were friends and associates with Gordon B. Hinckley. So in the interview, though, Louis Sims says something to the effect that He believed that Walton Hunter was given his bishopship in the church. You know, he was made a bishop uh, by Hinckley because of the relationship. He just kind of says, he's like, yeah, I think it was actually Hinckley that gave him his bishopship. So that caught my attention right away. I was like, wait, if this guy was a bishop in the church, then there's got to be a record of him. There's got to be, you know, something more about him. And uh, sure enough, I look up and I find Walton Hunter Uh, was a bishop in the church. He died in 1995 at the age of 75, and he served, you know, the obituary says it, he served twice as an LDS bishop, first 10 years in Salt Lake City, which is around the time when he would have owned the Hunter Motor Company, the time that these accusations were being made against him and Gordon B. Hinckley. Mm -hmm. And then he was also made a bishop again in San Jose, California for six years in what they call the 10th Ward. Um, Yeah, so he was deeply involved in the Mormon church for two periods of his life. But the one thing that the, uh, the obituary doesn't mention is that Gordon B, uh, excuse me, that Walton Hunter was also accused of being a pedophile by his own daughters. Right. He was accused of raping his daughter, Deborah Hunter, uh, Deborah Hunter Marsh is her full name now. And his other daughter, Rebecca sexually abusing her, you know, several times as well. And then in the long term, abusing their, both of their, uh, children, uh, a boy and a girl as well were abused by their grandfather. And, so okay. that just set off a whole new path for the investigation.
1: Now, the, these were allegations that were made by the daughters, correct? And this was done in, is, was it, it, let us know, Was these were te, uh, testimonial books and so on, like where there was multiple. So, ways.
0: so the first thing starts is that, the, the where I first learned about this is because, like I said, I started to look into Gordon B. Hinckley, I mean, uh, to Walton Hunter. And just like I said a moment ago, if you look up Walton Hunter in the Mormon history, there's no mention of any kind of wrinkles in his past or anything. It's mm-hmm. just like, oh, he served the church well. He brought in a lot of young people. He was a great guy and all that kind of stuff. So I started digging around. I'm like, there's got to be something about Walton Hunter you know, but it, it seemed to be the same case, like you were just saying a moment ago, that these accusations against him, because you know, although everybody focused on Hinckley and the tape is called the true story of Gordon B. Hinckley because he was eventually the president, the people around him were still Mormons who had roles in the church. So I mean they should be exposed as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. So that's where Walton Hunter comes from. And then when I started digging into Walton Hunter, I found a book written by his daughter, which was published in 2014. It is a self-published book that I don't think many people probably have come across. Uh, It's called Deliver Us From Evil. And it is her own written testimony, Deborah Hunter Marsh, actually co-written with her sister, Rebecca, detailing their their kind of family history and their life and also talking about examples of their father, um, you know, pretty graphically and... Uh, physically raping, you know, raping uh, Deborah Hunter Marsh throughout her life, throughout her young life. And it is a situation where she and her sister both seem to have kind of repressed these or suppressed these memories. And she had certain incidents happen to her when she became an adult. In the book, she talks about like, being in a loving relationship as an adult and she's you know starting to make love with her partner and something happened and just like she just flipped out and just pushed her partner away maybe he was a little too aggressive or something and she said it just triggered this memory and she started like shaking and went to fetal position and crying and then these memories started to come back that she realized she had been suppressing and the more she dug in and she started to talk about it and then she talked to her sister and her sister was like I think that that happened to me too and for the longest time she first it was like she realized I've been sexually abused when I was at some point when I was a little kid. I can't figure it out, and she starts like doing some work and recovering her her childhood, and then eventually comes to accept and believe like it was my father. It wasn't just like somebody like my father was doing this, and then she uh, recounts a lot of this. And so, you know, from that point as an adult now she decides that she wants to talk to her father about this and her parents. And so she started to see a uh, psychologist to share her memories and look for advice. And in the book, um, she actually shows that her therapist, once she told her therapist all about this, like, hey, I've just realized that my parents, my father was raping me. And this is the other thing. And I I honestly, I should have put a little bit, another sentence or two about this about the mother because the mother shouldn't get away as well. The mother knew that they were being raped by their father. She says the mother saw bloody sheets and saw stained sheets and heard things and even walked in on the dad molesting one of the daughters at one point and called her a slut and walked out and didn't do anything about it. And and the mom also apparently played an – like the, the mom helped create the circumstances where her husband, the grandfather, could rape the, the young kid, One you know, the the Deborah's – uh uh, nephew Mm -hmm. she stole she literally they tell a story where they the grandmother their mom stole one of the kids shoes so that he would have to stay behind from a beach visit and be alone with grandpa at the house after the moms had explicitly told him do not let the kids like we'll still be in your family but you can't be alone with our kids stay away from our kids and created the circumstance and then that kid later ended up being pretty traumatized and would eventually as he you know, age to say like, yes, some grandpa did something to me, yeah. and you know. Oh, just real
1: quick, if, 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 what's important to think about is the contrast between historical dismissals of of you know repressed memories and whether they're coaxed out. That's not what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about a and any. Any child psychologist or any kind of counsel you'll talk to will tell you that's exactly what happens, that you get your mind is like breaks and you protect yourself. And, you know, later these things come back to the surface. That's how this works. And that doesn't mean that they're all guaranteed to be accurate. But at the end of the day, this was something that organically popped out during a sexual experience. And that speaks volumes about what we're talking about or that both daughters or that their children on top of all of that. I mean, God damn it. I don't know. Excuse me. I don't know how you dismiss this kind of stuff and you know what i mean without any investigation and act like there's something honest happening i apologize for cursing it just frustrates me i didn't mean to do that go ahead Derek. no
0: i i i definitely can understand the frustration man and i will say this look in the book deborah specifically says her memories came back to her before she went to see her uh therapist because i know some people right. will be like oh yeah this is the thing where the therapist implant memories in people's minds or whatever but We're not done yet. She actually has evidence, documented evidence showing this. Um, Is it possible for me to share my screen real quick, Ryan? I want to show from the book. Um, in uh, In the book, she actually includes letters from her therapist to her parents. Can you see that there?
1: Yeah, got it. Go ahead.
0: So if, and it's going to be hard to read because these are scanned copies from old documents, but if you can see at the top, it says Sterling Ellsworth psychologist. This is the name of her psychologist who was helping her May 20th, 1992, a letter addressed to miss June Hunter, which was her mother. Dear Miss Hunter, I'm sorry there's so much pain in your family. You evidently blame everyone but yourself for this pain. This makes you feel better, but it's not the truth. This is after the mom has accused the therapist of infecting his daughters and poisoning their minds and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of responding, saying, like, this makes you feel better. Uh, you assume that all therapists do the two things that you have been cautioned against. You have no knowledge of what any therapist does, only your own assumption, which comes from your intense need to externalize blame. And so he says, I know exactly what happened in my therapy with Debbie. I can state without any reservation whatsoever that none of these things or any other leading techniques happen in her therapy. I never i never do any of these things, nor have I done in all of my 30 years of practice. The last thing I want is for people to have been sexually abused. She told me this after barely four interviews. No one had a chance to do any of those probing or leading things. I agree there are therapists who do, but I am not one of them. She has been to other counselors, therapists, and groups besides myself, and probably was aware of these things before seeing me. Um, and then she, he just goes on to say, like, why are you not willing to come meet? He, he, they just keep saying, like, please come meet with your daughter and mm-hmm. therapy. I think it'll be healthy. And, uh, you know, so he shows here. Here's the letters. Here's her mom signing a letter. Um, My reason for writing you is to implore you and your colleagues to abandon this philosophy which you have used with Debbie so that other families will not have to endure this terrible pain. So they're basically just trying to blame it on the therapist and say that she was only talking about this. But, yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because she specifically – focused on that because this is a tactic that victims will often face. People will say like, Oh, well, if you didn't know the day after it happened and you just rediscovered it later, then clearly you saw it in a movie, or somebody implanted it into your mind, or you know, you, oh, you saw a therapist. Well, he must have, you know, made you think this happened, and it's it's BS, man. I think it's well, you know, which which it, is possible. Like to be clear, and I know you agree, it with is that, possible, it's
1: definitely something that has happened, can happen, but this is not that based on everything you concede. It doesn't make necessarily mean that proves that it's completely accurate. But the point is that there's no evidence this was coaxed or manipulated. This came organically, and then it got discussed in a in a therapy session. I mean, that, that's what bothers me about this.
0: I actually was just able to speak with Deborah Marsh right before this interview. Um, We didn't get to speak to her before publishing, but we will be uh, updating uh, in the next 24 hours with a statement from her because I was able to finally get in touch with her, and I told her all about our investigation. I told her that we are drawing attention to her book and her claims against her father. This woman is not doing well health-wise. She's probably in the last couple years of her life, and she still sticks by her story. She has no reason to lie to you know, she's just told me again on the phone. Her, her two other brothers, her siblings, who for whatever reason were not abused by their father or refused, maybe if they were, they don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. They have. Shut off the family. She lost, you know, her family. She lost her grand, you know, her nieces and nephews. They she can't see any of that family. They cut off her and her sister Rebecca for talking about this. So it's not like she's gained anything. Her book's not a bestseller. It's not like she made any money off this. Nobody even knows about this book. Right. This woman just is sharing her story. Now she's not doing very good health-wise. She's, you know, in the last couple years of her life. And I spoke to her just now and she said thank you. She appreciates our efforts to bring light to this. And yes, she still 100% stands by her story. And she, you know, we'll talk more in just a moment um, as I go deeper into the article, what what she also told me. But I just want to make that clear. We've spoken with this woman now. She's still alive. She stands by her story. She hasn't changed a single thing. And, you know, there's more evidence. Let, let's keep going to the article, Ryan, unless you have got anything else. Right. Um so we showed the, the letters with the therapist, right? And the book is interesting because, I mean, I read the whole book this week and I, I didn't want to write about it without reading every single word. So I, I read it and she starts by kind of giving a history of her family. And as I said earlier, the Utah families, the Mormon connections, you can look up the hunters going back to the founding of, of Utah and the church. Like they're They're a historical family. And so she talks about her father's branch of that family. And she thinks that he was probably uh, abused as, at a young age and at the very least didn't receive very much love or support. And I don't think she's trying to like excuse his behavior by any means. She's just trying to, I think, understand like, how did this happen? Where does this come from? And um, she, you know, starts talking about that. Then she starts really getting to it. I don't know that it's necessary guys. It's written in my article. If you want to know the, the dark messed up details, But she describes, you know, being raped by her father uh, many times in this book. And, um, you know, just, yeah, all kinds of things. And she does, though, and this is where things get interesting. She actually, in the documentary, in the book, she mentions the Godmakers. She doesn't mention the film by name that we have, but she does mention the Godmakers. And this is where I think things get interesting. And this, I actually asked her about this on the phone, so we have an update. Um, She wrote this. She said, the truth of how naughty my father had been or was being came out in little ways in 1964. And what she's talking about is when these incidents of these accusations about him having the sex parties and stuff, that was all going on in the sixties, but it wasn't until the eighties when it would start to come out in the Godmakers, um, two and in the film that we have. So she discusses these and she says that. Because you got to remember, Gordon B. Hinckley's named in there, but also her father's named. And so I was curious, it was like her father is accused of being at sex parties with young boys and prostitutes and whatever else, but he's also accused of being at home and raping his own daughter. So this guy clearly has, you know, it shows, it corroborates that he had some kind of problem, some kind of issue going on. Well, when she mentions it, um, she doesn't mention Gordon B. Hinckley by name. In fact, I thought it was interesting that they chose to not name him instead. They just call him a high ranking church official.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And she says that quote, her and her sister do not believe that any high Mormon church official was involved. Um, but they do acknowledge the incident and, and basically corroborate that there was a man named Charles Van Dam that worked at the car lot because you got to remember in her, from her perspective, when her dad was owning the car lot and doing all kinds of stuff, she was a little girl visiting the car lot. So she mm-hmm. remembers meeting Louis Sims, meeting uh, Charles Van Dam, meeting all the people who are named in the tape. So Clearly, she's corroborating that they existed, that they did work there, that they knew her father. So that's more layers of evidence there. Um, And so when I spoke to her on the phone, I asked her about this. And she actually said that she does believe the claims about Gordon B. Hinckley are true. And she Hmm. thinks that from what she's heard over the years, that way worse than what the tape says are true. And that's all she would really say. And I asked her, I said, well, why did you choose to not name him in the book? And she said she was encouraged, or sort of, uh, yeah, encouraged by people close to her to not name him. They, you know, yeah. didn't want him involved. And even that statement, I don't think that was probably her. That you know, specific statement that says we do not believe any high Mormon Church official was involved, because what she just told me today, August twenty third, two thousand twenty two, is the exact opposite. And I don't, I don't think it was because she had a change of heart. I think she felt that way from the very beginning. But there were. Other people that she wanted to consider in making the book. And that's all we, we can really say about it. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if you want to press further on that. So the, you're going to,
1: the, the bottom line is that that's, it's, you know, you can question it and you should, like anything else we come across. But, you know, that, that would, that would make sense ultimately. But you, that, you know, it adds a level of, of question there, you know, whether or not they, they state on the record that they weren't, but then weirdly at the same time say that there was a high ranking official that was involved. So even that in the book, it, it actually contradicts itself. You know, so that later speaking to it, that it would add up. But you know, it's it's hard for people to swallow that if they're already skeptical. You know.
0: Oh, you're you're muted, Derek. Go ahead. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. So I think again that her saying that now today still alive existing, it it, it and you could just take it as it's just one woman's opinion, right? Do do we need to give her opinion more weight because she was molested by raped by her father who was also friends with Hinckley, who's also accused in the video? I think you should give it a little more weight. That doesn't necessarily make it fact just yet. But I mean, at some point when you have five or six people saying, I saw this thing, I witnessed this thing. I mean, we're never going to get a clear document that says, here was the dates that Gordon B. Hinckley and Walton Hunter were hanging out this house with these people at this time and location. So I'm not saying we should just totally go on speculation and just make our own assumptions, but we have to also acknowledge that we're never going to get the golden document that makes it perfectly clear. Well, here, here's what I
1: wanted to add to that, and this is the important thing to think about, is you take any situation throughout history that was denied until it was proven, right? You you, you don't, unless they get their day in court, unless they get some honest invest, investigative effort, even even then it still needs to have like an, a, a genuine displayed, you know, in, like a, a day in court that ultimately you'll never, you can always dismiss it. Because it never got fleshed out. They go, oh, well, that's that story that never went anywhere. Well, that's because nobody ever gave it the time it deserved. Now, that's not to speak say that because that, that didn't happen that it proves it's true. But you can look through history and see an endless amount of examples. I mean, whether we're talking foreign policy or even things like this. Think about Epstein again, for example. Think about how many times that story was dismissed and ridiculed and laughed at and all oh, fake news and all the different people that were involved, that were abused, that did suffer those problems, you know, with high-ranking people involved. Or let's take somebody like Dennis Hassert, right, second in line to the president for crying out loud, that very clearly on the record is now shown to be, and the judge called him a serial child molester. Those people were dismissed when they first came out, right? So the bottom line is, at this point, it's not, this has never gotten the light of day. It's never gotten the actual time to, you know, to flesh out in front of a public public scrutiny right? So that's what they rely on is hoping that it doesn't get enough attention to where it is forced into the light because then it might actually get fleshed out. But until then, oh, fake news because it's never, that one never went anywhere. You know, that's what I see this amounting to. So until it gets that, this is up in the air as far as I'm concerned. And and what you're pointing out with your research seems to suggest quite strongly, that's where everything points. Like that, there's something to this.
0: Yeah. And I want to say one other thing about my conversation with Deborah Marsh before I go to this last section. And and it's just it's just her opinion, so it is what it is. But when I mentioned to her what we were doing, and I told her that we had the tapes, the Gord Hinkley tape, which she was aware of, and I told her we put it's on the internet now. We've uploaded it; it's out there, and you know, into the world. It's never been done before. She was thankful for that. And I told her we had another tape. I told her about Daryl Clegg, how Daryl Clegg says he witnessed these things. And when I told her that he had asked that his tape not be released till after he, he died, you know, she had her own views and opinions on that and her frustration as a victim was that people need to release this is she said something to the effect that people need to release the information when they have it you know i don't like it when people wait till after they're dead because by then it's just too late right so and and i get it because people don't want to die a miserable two shotguns to the chest hanging from a tree whatever kind of death you know mysterious death uh what the different journalists slashing their wrist 12 times and blowing their heads, you know, all these crazy things that we know Shoot yourself twice in the head, you know, all, these yeah, like, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like that's what people are terrified of. That's why people, and you know, the other thing is sometimes people, and these are things that I, I have to consider when I'm working on cases like this. And when I talk to several witnesses who say, you're putting your head in the lion's mouth, the, you know, the the Mormon church will wiretap you, you know, or just these are things I've heard from different sources, you know, to so be careful is that, you know, it's not just, it, I don't know, I just think it's important to get the story out one way or the other, to show people the facts of the case, and we have to be realistic about the amount of effort that has been put in to suppress these, these stories, right? So I get why people would not want to speak up, but Deborah Hunter Marsh was just essentially expressing her frustration and her hope and her wish that more victims or people who have evidence of people being victimized would speak up sooner rather than later.
1: You know, and, what's, sad, what's sad about it is it drives people to a position where you ultimately get the people who end up being the, the witnesses, and I think this is by design to a degree, that are the ones that have nothing left to lose. They're just like, you know what, I, I, I've lost my family, I've lost everything. my credibility, you know, so I'm, I'm going to nail this to the floor as best I can. But the problem is that very situation they put them in then becomes the reason they get dismissed. Oh, this guy doesn't care, you know, he's upset or he wants to lash back out or she or, you know, and and that's, I think, by design to a degree.
0: Is yeah, absolutely. Like- yeah, so I just wanted to make that point about you know just share Deborah Marsh's thoughts on that you know and that's you know we all handle these situations differently. We're not here to judge how a person in that position might choose to respond, but it is what it is. Um, so the, the last part of the the article about uh, Deborah Marsh's story, I I also just go in and show that you know she documents not only her abuse and there's a whole chapter dedicated to her sister's abuse. And then there's one chapter dedicated to the abuse that happened to her, uh, her, her nephew. And then later on, she would find out that her own daughter was abused as well. And she would, you know, so e- there's different chapters kind of telling these stories. Um, but essentially, for the, for the women, the adult women, by the time they, they recounted their their abuse, it was too late, statute of limitations. They couldn't, you know, put dad in prison because it was just time has passed. And then when it came to the young boy who was abused, who they call Alex in the book, he was just so traumatized. That this this I mean, they say, like, we don't need to talk about what allegedly happened to him, but when he started to have his breakouts, he would just say, my mouth hurts, my mouth hurts, my mouth hurts, and just like start like covering his mouth. And I don't want to be a grandpa. I don't want to be a grandpa. I don't ever want to be a grandpa. I don't want to get old, you know, and just he would just go into these fits like he couldn't talk. So they were like, there's no way we can put him on the stand and get him to testify against his grandpa. He's just not going to be able to do it. He, he's dealing with this. Later in life, he was able to share, but he was just so traumatized for the first few years. So that was out of the books. And so they pursued a civil lawsuit. Um, to try to see if they could get some. Well, the first thing they did was they tried to get, they, they tried and they succeeded to get their dad excommunicated from the church. So as we mentioned earlier, when he's accused of the Salt Lake City stuff with Gordon B. Hinckley, that's when he was a bishop in the Salt Lake City Church. Well, something happens and I, I write about it. She writes about it. She's not sure, but it involved Charles Van Damme, potential money laundering. She just remembers like one day my family picked up, grabbed everything. We moved out of Salt Lake City and we left and we were broke for a while and they were struggling and You know, so we don't really know the full details on what that was about, but they end up in Southern California. And before long, her dad makes it back into the church and he becomes a bishop again and everybody loves him and all this great stuff. And so she and her sister, you know, they get the courage to go together and uh, and bring these accusations to his uh, his stake president, which is like the stake president is the one that is over the bishops in the church. So, you know, he was the one that had the authority to potentially do something. And they're basically saying, Hey, our dad was abusing us as kids. We now have evidence evidence. He abused one of our grandkids. And I'm searching in the book right now to see if I can pull it up. She actually included in the book, the letter from um, the stake president where they, you know, he says, okay, we've received your information. And they eventually invited her and her sister to participate what the Mormon church calls a disciplinary council where they had to in front of the twelve like church leaders, uh, maybe the stake presidents. Here, I'll, I actually found it. Let me share this on screen. Um, this is from stake president Alan Gunnerson in her church, and she was invited with her sister to come testify in front of these 12 men. Here you could see. So, again, she provides, like, documented evidence. May 19, 1993, Miss Debbie Marsh, dear sister Marsh, the El Cajon stake presidency is considering formal disciplinary action against your father, Walton W. Hunter, as a result of the charge of moral conduct unbecoming a member of the church. You are cordially invited to attend the disciplinary council to present your charges and give your evidence to your father. So she did that. And this says June 6, 1993. It gives the date, time, location. It even has the old phone number of Alan Gunnerson, the stake president. I don't know what other evidence you can get that this right. actually happened. So, she does go ahead and her and her sister attend the disciplinary council and they share their story. You know, they bravely share their story and and like looking in their father's eyes and saying, you did this. And there's 12 people around. I mean, it sounds like a pretty intimidating situation the way she described it, but her and her sister both tell their story and they say that they describe like coming home afterwards and just having this sense of relief that they finally were able to share their story. And then on the way, um, I guess a couple hours after that, The man that's listed there, State President Alan Gunderson, he ended up showing up at their house and coming by to notify them that their father had been excommunicated.
1: Well, and one part you mentioned in your your article is even though it ended up that way, think about how hard that would be like you mentioned but that they argued that what they felt like was happening was more so that they were being judged while that was happening you know and even and i arguably if that is the case that that's that the evidence was so obvious that he still got excommunicated but regardless you have to go through this process where you have to stand in front of these people and admit all this stuff that's really difficult but to yeah. me it's the biggest part there and i just want to make sure that's clear to people that it, you know very easily could have gone the other way if there was less to go on but What's interesting to me that again, speaking to the the continuity of all this or you know the the corroboration that that so Walton Hunter verifiably has as associate of hinckley that's on that's not debatable right so and then and then all these accusations are coming out about Hinckley and all this different stuff we've talked about that sure people could say Cope, we're co-, you know dismiss if they t- want to without it we don't know for sure, but then you've got someone like Walton who very clearly was excommunicated for whatever they called it, a moral lapse or whatever they frame the, the abuse of his own children. So right there, you have an obvious associate that very clearly got excommunicated for those exact things that Hinkley's being accused of. So I mean, at some point here, you have to realize there's something going on here. Now, whether Hinkley covered up or whether he's guilty of what they accused him of, the fact that this never went any further and there's no public you know, explanation of what happened with investigation, whether it was anything done or whether it was shuttled, shelved away by the church, I mean, that makes me upset. You know, that this was very obviously suppressed to some degree.
0: And this is why we called the story justice delayed, guys. I mean, this is because justice hasn't been served, as in so many cases. And to your point, you said before, Ryan, I think it is important to reiterate that so many victims that I've either spoken to throughout my work on The Finders or Epstein or other cases like this Franklin scandal. You know, you were pointing out some of the beginning of the conversation. That's what they talk about, that it's difficult. They don't even want to come forward because it's like all eyes on them. You know, it's 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 scary. It's like you're being, in some cases, people describe it as like they're being raped again. They have to describe the things they went through again, right? And not only that, in the case of Deborah Hunter Marsh, like, again, and I told her this on the phone, like, I, I just want to respect you and honor you for sharing your story and let you know we're doing what we can to get this story out further. Because and, and if anybody's interested, the book is out there, Deliver Us From Evil, Deborah Hunter Marsh, you know, if you want to read it, support her. I mean, I don't know, you know, she's not interested in financial support. It's all about trying to get this these ideas out, this message out. Um, and she still is a believer. She still has her faith in Christ and these sorts of things and has her beliefs about what happened to her father and her mother uh, who allowed this abuse to take place. But Yeah, it's very difficult for victims to come forward, and I let her know that this story and the way that we were pursuing it isn't about trying to sensationalize it about you know whatever celebrity, whatever may be involved or who the profile people are. It's about trying to give a... a, For me, it's about giving a voice to Deborah Hunter and giving a voice to Daryl Clegg, who was involved and knew things about what was going on with that tape and says he saw things and heard witnesses confirm what is said on the tape about Gordon B. Hinckley but wanted to make sure that these things would come out eventually and chose to do so after his death. Those are the two people we're honoring with this series and, and getting this message out there. So I just wanted to make that clear. And the final thing I want to mention, um, do you say, have something, Ryan? Oh,
1: I, I, what I was going to say is ultimately that not only is it hard for them to get in front of a group like this and express and you know relive these horrific events, but then think add on top of that that you then get attacked and accused of lying, of misrepresent you know, I mean, and that's the kind of thing we see all over the place, where the victims of foreign policy, let's say, then get called the terrorists. You know, like this is the kind of thing that we see everywhere, and it just be that's exactly why it's so impossible, probably by design, for these people to speak up. That's what that's what I would add to it. So go ahead
0: yeah i mean maybe it's an over overused phrase but it's it's literally victim blaming like that's that's what what happens and that's why a lot of people don't choose to come out um just i want to mention that you know we were just talking about the last part of the series where uh deborah and her sister they get the father excommunicated from the church and she tells her stories and and that is a positive thing right so they couldn't go after him legally and try to put him in prison because there was a statute of limitations young Alex was incapable of telling his story and was not going to be able to do it in a court. So they went with let's get dad excommunicated. So they got him kicked out of the church. They knew that was going to hurt him and take him out of the church where he couldn't have access to any other kids or, you know, anything because Deborah doesn't know she believes that it's possible, but she doesn't know if her dad was only, you know, she, she knows the accusations about him and Gordon B Hinckley and they were doing stuff over there. She believes that's likely true, but she, you know she only knows her story and she's like you know it's po- it's probable my father was doing other things outside of the home and also raping his daughters but it's also possible maybe he just kept it all in the house so she doesn't know but she definitely felt like the best case scenario was to get him out of the church like take him away from the church so he couldn't even have the chance to do these kind of things and then after that uh, a little bit further down they pursued a civil lawsuit and again we have a record for that if you want to click that link Ryan it's uh and open that up so people can see that that it's just a little bit lower right there. Yeah. Um, it, that shows, and it's interesting because if you see that case detail and what, the reason I'm really thankful for Deborah Marsh is because she made it super easy in the book. She said, if you go search the San Diego Supreme Court, look up my case number, my name, she named it all out there, made it super easy to find this case. Now the actual case, you'd have to go in person to get a, um, uh, the actual copy of the court transcripts, but just this alone, you can see Debbie Marsh, there's her, um jennifer marsh i'm going to assume is uh one of the children uh and I, I don't know because again in the in the book they use fake names becky rapp is her sister rebecca but then they also named two kids so you see it's it's them and their kids who they said were abused by uh the grandfather and it, what's interesting is you look down there on the defendants and they do name june hunter and walton hunter that's the husband and wife but it also added john, john doe so i'm curious if somebody did make an effort to try to hide the names because you see how it's marsh versus doe like maybe somebody tried to file something to like not get a name listed, but either way with the case number that she had in the book, it was very easy to find. And
1: that's the primary, like, as you can list. So John, whoever the John Doe is, is the primary, like you said, Marsh versus exactly. Doe. That's very strange actually that you bring that up because Walton. So you, you what do I don't mean, we guess we probably shouldn't guess, but you, there's obviously a well, the, the name here that seems like that might be included.
0: Hey, well, somebody in San Diego. I know we got people listening in San Diego. Scroll down just a little bit uh, lower, Ryan, uh, where it says the microfilm. Mm-hmm. That is, if you wanted to go, look at that. Documents are viewable at. You have to literally go there and give them. Say, I want to see this real number at this thing and in the building. Somebody, and I mean this seriously. I, you know, I'll throw in a couple bucks if somebody's in the area and can make some a trip there. Go there. Visit in person. You just sign in. It's nothing illegal, and you can take pictures. They won't let you take the documents out of there, but so that hasn't been digitized yet. But there might be some interesting details about who that John Doe is in those records. I'm not going to be in San Diego anytime soon, just yet. But if anybody else is and has the time, uh, you can reach out to me via email, and I'd be down to help make that up. Because yeah, that's again a potentially other lead in the case, right? There might be something else associated with the case that Debbie is not even aware of, or maybe doesn't recall. Because I will say at this point you know, she, she isn't in the best of health and, um, she remembers her book clearly in her experiences, but she did say she has, you know, trouble with some, some memories, things like that. So, um, yeah, and there's, that's three documentation. We got the letter of the excommunication from the church. We've got the letters from the therapist trying to invite the parents to come talk about the abuse. And we've got a court record showing that they went to court. It happened that Walton Hunter is guilty of raping his daughters and abusing his daughters. He's dead now; he can't do anything about it. But his daughters to, are still living. Some of his family doesn't want to hear it; they think it's garbage. They think the sisters are, you know, full of it. But the other two sisters are still trying to pursue justice for themselves and their 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 kids. Um, and as I said, Debbie Debbie has her beliefs. She believes that her do- her dad is paying for his sins right now, and that you know. He, there will be a chance to maybe make amends in in, in uh, the afterlife and things like that, but um beyond that, her story's out there, and uh, yeah that's that's the justice delayed investigation basically
1: and and you know it, it's going to be ultimately up to Derek if he wants to continue and flesh this out. I argue there's plenty more to continue with the documents we just discussed. But I'd like to add one last thing, just on that note, since you mentioned the religious aspect of it, or just you know, in, in his perspective, that I, 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 if I remember correctly, there was a part in in the books or one of the documentation where he discusses. I think it was her book, in fact, that discusses him feeling like he was being surrounded by dark figures at the end and that um, yeah. whole thing. I just find that really interesting. Whether or not that's what happened or it was in his mind, that also speaks to a level of guilt, in my opinion. You know that he's feeling this this impending doom as he, you know, in you know, you have any thoughts yeah. on that?
0: Yeah, well, actually, I did talk to Debbie Marsh about that on the phone, and she reiterated that, and she said that her, her mom said that her dad was terrified the last couple of days he was alive, that he was just, as she says in the book, and that's why I included in the article, because I feel like, religious or not, it's just an interesting detail, that he yeah. was in his final days telling his wife, like, I, I, I'm, I'm leaving soon, and I, I'm scared. And he said that there were dark figures starting to assemble around him. And just watching him, and and just kind of, he was just like, I guess, getting closer to death. And yeah, uh, it's interesting to think about, to say the well, least.
1: Yeah, I mean, what you know, whether you're religious or not, one can only hope that somebody who is guilty of these crimes would face justice for it, whether now or in the afterlife. So ultimately, you know, what you're doing is incredibly important, Derek. And I'm glad that you have the courage to, to dive through this, especially with there's already attacks coming in left and right. You know, whether there's comments or people uh, taking actions against, you know, bottom line, there are people that do not like this kind of thing being fleshed out, even if it's true, yeah. especially if it's true. So I appreciate your courage Absolutely. there.
0: Yeah. Th- yeah. Thank you again, brother, for giving me the uh, the opportunity to write with you and work with you at Last American Vagabond. But also, the you know, one thing I'll say, uh, two things I'll say to end is that in independent media, we yeah. often don't have the ability to follow up with stories like this because and this is just a little bit of background for those who don't know. When you work in independent media, typically you get paid per thing you do, per video you do, per article you do, right? And you need to eat and you need to pay rent and you need to survive. So that doesn't always lend itself towards long form investigations where you can do nothing but focus on one thing for weeks or months at a time if it's necessary. And that's sometimes what these cases deserve and need to really understand them, not just a Five hundred word article or a thirty minute video, you know, and think you got it figured out. So I just want to say thank you, Ryan, and of course everybody who supports the Last American Vagabond because without your support, we wouldn't be able to commit these kind, this kind of time. Like if I didn't have the support from TLAV, then I would have to do you know more frequent work and maybe wouldn't be able to put as much time into these investigations. So I just want to uh, say thank you, Ryan, for that, and everybody who helps uh, what we're doing. Continue. And then the last thing I'll mention is I'm actually, after we finish this, I'll be publishing shortly today, a kind of behind the scenes blog on my website, theconsciousresistance.com. It's just called How the Justice Delayed Investigation Finally Came to Light. Some of that we we talked about here in the uh, this interview, but I'm going to just kind of put that out there. So there's also, for those who are curious, just about maybe that some inside baseball mm-hmm. background journalism about how I was pursuing this story that will be published on my website later this afternoon.
1: Outstanding, yeah, and and uh, make sure you check that out. We'll throw it in the show notes when when that comes out. Um, and, and thank you for saying that, Derek. In general, I think you know it's it, there's such a process to this, and and again, just the lion's share of the credit to Derek. I mean, every you just knock this out of the park, in my opinion, and really put the time in. But just since you mentioned that, and I appreciate that because most people don't realize what is what it takes to maintain this, whether from conscious resistance perspective, the Last American Vagabond, or any other platform. You know, we need your support. We cannot do this without you. And the, and at every moment we keep putting this stuff out and we keep doing the work and we keep fighting for the truth, it gets more and increasingly more difficult to make it happen. More attacks, more censorship, more suppression. So if you're out there and you believe in what we're doing, please take a moment. And whether it's right here on the homepage, support TLAV or going up here to the donation link or any of the other donation links you can see up there, it's important to help this kind of work continue. Because I mean, look, I, I do my show every, almost you know four or five times a week. And I can't, and there's so much going on that I think is so incredibly important. But you rarely see the kind of investigatory work that Derek just did in really anywhere these days, to be quite honest. And I think that's what we need more of is the kind of long form investigation. And whether you're supporting Last American Vagabond or the Conscious Resistance, make sure that you continue to do so because this stuff wouldn't exist without your support. So thank you all out there for being here and giving us the time and the, the ability to do this. As always, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant.